in your life, when is the last time you can remember the sun not rising? God's faithful. God's faithful. When God said to Abraham that for 400 years his descendants would be a stranger in a land and that he would bring them out and they would have great possessions. God told Abraham hundreds of years before the fact this will happen. Did he do it? Yep. The book of Exodus tells us that God is faithful to his word. And so why do we believe the accounts about the birth of Jesus? We're celebrating the birth of Jesus Christ, God coming in the flesh. Why do we believe that? How come this isn't just a myth? How come it isn't just a fairy tale? We believe it for two reasons. Because God, who does what he says he'll do, said he'd do it. And secondly... We see the evidence of its truthfulness. We see the evidence of its fulfillment. So this morning I want to talk to you about expectation and evidence. Expectation and evidence there in your uh, sermon notes for today. And as we talk about the expectation, I want to talk about the people of his birth. I want to talk about the place of his birth and then the nature of his birth. Because these are all predictive. Predictive. This is talking about the expectation for the coming one, for the coming of Jesus Christ. So let's look at the people of his birth. And we have to go all the way back almost to the very beginning of the Bible to see the first prediction of the birth of Jesus Christ, the coming one. So turn to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. So you want to keep your Bible handy because we're going to be flipping through it today quite a bit. We usually don't do that, but I'm just giving you a warning. Keep those fingers limber. So Genesis chapter 3 verse 13, we see that the coming one is going to be a human, going to be a human being who is a male. Look at what it says. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So the Lord here is speaking to the serpent, who we know from Revelation chapter 12, verses 9 and 10, is Satan, the great dragon, the serpent of old, the devil. And notice here that in this verse we have the prediction that this coming one will be the conqueror. The conqueror, we could say the savior or redeemer as well. It says, he shall bruise your head. That's a death blow. That's a conquering blow. Uh, the seed of the woman, her seed is the one who will do this. We also see here the prediction that this one who's going to be the conqueror, who's going to deliver this death blow, is going to be a man. It says, he shall bruise your head. He. So we're getting some information about who this coming one is. He's going to be a conqueror. He's going to conquer Satan. And it's a man. Uh, number three here under this heading, we see that this prediction that this man is going to be connected to a woman. 
and not a man. Going to be connected to a woman and not a man. See what it says there? It says between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. And so this coming one's connected to a woman, not a man, and this is totally unexpected. It goes totally against the norms of culture. It goes against natural law. When we think about the topic of procreation, the seed is always in reference to a man. Except here. It's not in reference to a man. It's in reference to this woman that is mentioned here. And so God has reversed the order. And you know when God does something, he often does something unexpected in unexpected ways. And when this happens, what do we do? When we see God do something that's just totally out of the blue, totally unexpected. Sometimes we call those things miracles. But when God does those things, what do we do? We stop, we hit the pause button, and we pay attention and ask, what am I supposed to be paying attention to? What, am, what is God doing here? And so in this very first verse we're looking at, we see that God is doing something unique, something unexpected, something out of the ordinary when he connects the coming one, this conqueror, to the seed of the woman. Automatically, our antennas should go up and we should be asking, why does it say the seed of the woman and not the seed of the man? What is happening here? What is God going to do here? And of course, this is talking about the prediction that this coming one's going to conquer the great enemy of man, Satan. So this one who is promised, here from Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, is the one who will come, he will be a human he will be a male, and he's going to conquer Satan. We also see with the people of his birth that this coming one will be from the family of Shem. The family of Shem. Turn over in your Bible to Genesis chapter 9 now. Genesis chapter 9, verses 26 through 27. It says here, And he said, Blessed be the Lord the God of Shem. And may Canaan be his servant, and may God enlarge Japheth, and may he dwell in the tents of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. So Shem is one of the sons of Noah. And what we see happening here is the focus on what God is doing, the focus on who God is sending in this coming one, has narrowed down from just being a human being, being a male, to now we're getting a little bit of his ethnic identity. He is going to be from the family of Shem. Uh, the prediction that the descendants, this prediction shows us that the descendants of Shem will be the most prominent in God's plan for man. So this coming one is going to be a Semite. It's going to be a Semite. Remember, all the peoples of the earth came from Noah and his three sons. 
and Shem is the father of the Semites. Now, who exactly are the Semites? Who exactly is the Semitic race? Now, we use, we hear the phrase anti-Semitism all the time, specifically connected to the Jews. But here in the scriptures, being a Semite is not just connected to the Jews. Uh, Turn over to the next chapter in Genesis, Genesis chapter 10, verse 22. And you see there at the top of that verse, at the beginning of that verse, it talks about the sons of Shem, the sons of Shem. And the first son we see here is Elam. Elam is connected to Persia or Iran. Then we see Asher. Asher is connected to Assyria which is the northern part of Mesopotamia, northern Iraq, into Turkey, into Armenia. Then we see Arphaxad. He is connected to Chaldea, the southern part of Mesopotamia. This is Iraq. This is southern Iraq. And then we see, I lost my place here. What verse did I say, 22? Lud and Aram. Aram, let me go with Aram here. This is, he's connected to Syria. Syria. And the last son is Joktem, and he's connected to Arabia. And so we have Syrians that are connected to the Semites. We have the Chaldeans that are connected to the Semites. We have the Assyrians that are connected to the Semites. We have the Persians that are connected to the Semites. And we have the Arabians who are connected to the Semites. So we might just say this passage is giving us the information that the coming one, the one that God is going to send to be the conqueror over Satan, is going to be of Middle Eastern descent. So we got a little bit more information, but that's not all the Bible says. So now I want you to turn to chapter 12, Genesis chapter 12. Put a finger in chapter 12. We're going to come back there but also put a finger in chapter 26 and 28. Okay, Genesis chapter 12, then Genesis chapter 26, and Genesis chapter 28. Still got seven fingers left, so we got plenty of the spaces you can go. So this coming one will not only be from the family of Shem, but we see here specifically in these verses that he is going to be from the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, specifically, I want you to focus on verse 2. It says, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. Verse 3, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. Now notice the last phrase of verse 3. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So in some way, God's going to bless the entire world through the family of Abraham. Now turn to Genesis chapter 26. Genesis chapter 26 and verses 2 through 5, we see that the Abrahamic promise, the Abrahamic covenant is passed on to his son Isaac. 
Not Ishmael, Isaac. Notice specifically at the end of verse 3. This is God just telling Isaac, I'm going to do everything that I said to your father, I'm going to do for you. Notice the end of verse 3. It says, and I will perform the oath which I swore to Abraham, your father. And so God now says to Isaac, I'm making the same covenant with you as I did with Abraham. So it's going to be through you that the world is going to receive a blessing. Now turn to chapter 28, verses 10 through 15. Pretty familiar Sunday school passage. This is Jacob having a dream of this ladder that goes from the earth to heaven. I want you to look at verse 13 in particular. Verse 13 it says, And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your descendants. Also, your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So we see here that God is now narrowing. He's giving us more identification about the people from whom the coming one is to come to the earth. He's a human. He's going to be of Middle Eastern descent, but more specifically, he's going to be from the family of Abraham. In particular, he's going to come through Abraham's son, Isaac, and he's going to come through Isaac's son, Jacob. And one of the things that we notice here is that in the Old Testament, God uses this term seed. Seed. So we're in Genesis chapter 28. If you look at verse 14, look at the very end of verse 14 again. It says, and in you and in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So he's very specific. He says, your seed. Now what's really interesting about this is because if we would turn to Galatians chapter 3, verse 16, Paul makes a big deal out of the fact that the word seed is singular and not plural. He says, not of seeds, but of seed, which is Christ. So Paul tells us, now, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they didn't have this information, but we have this information because we have our New Testaments. But Paul tells us when God gave this prophecy, when he said, I'm going to do this, when he said seed, he wasn't talking about a bunch of different people. He was talking about one person. He was talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this coming one is going to be a male, I was going to say a male man, but he's going to be a male, M-A-L-E, man, <laughs> man. And um, he's going to be of Middle Eastern descent. 
And he's going to be of the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And what do we call people who are of the family of Jacob? Jews. So he's going to be a Jew. He's not just going to be any Semite. He's going to be a Jew. And he's not just going to be a Jew. He's going to be from the family of Judah. He's going to be from the family of Judah. Now turn to Genesis chapter 49. Genesis chapter 49. So all these passages are related to the prediction of the coming one who is gradually being revealed by God as to who he is. And this is all in the first book of the Bible, the very first book of the Bible. We find all this information. So this coming one is going to be from the family or the tribe of Judah. Uh, Look at verse 10 in particular. Verse 10. It says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. Uh, Judah is Jacob's fourth son, a son of Leah. And at the end of Jacob's life, when he is blessing his sons, He gives this special blessing to his son, Judah. And there's at least two very important aspects to this blessing. Number one, this is a blessing of rule or rulership. It says in the first part of verse 10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah nor a lawgiver from between his feet. A scepter is a symbol of rule and authority. So Jacob in his blessing is saying... Of all my sons, those who come from Judah are the ones who will be the rightful rulers over my family, the descendants of my family. Uh, Secondly, we see here that this is going to be the blessing that the coming one will be from the family of Judah. It says in the second part of the verse... Until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. Now that phrase, until Shiloh comes, is more correctly translated, until he comes, the one to whom it belongs. And so right here, we see this expectation that this ruling that is given to the tribe of Judah is not just given to anybody in the tribe of Judah, but it's given to one who will come from the tribe of Judah. Shiloh, the one to whom it belongs. The it there is referring back to the scepter. The one who has rightful claim on the scepter. That means every other member of the tribe of Judah who has ruled over Israel Between that time, even till today, they're just holding the place. They're not the real deal. They are just holding the place until the one comes who will rule over Israel. So we have this prediction of the coming one. And so this one who is spoken about 
all the way up through the line of Judah. It's connected all the way back to Genesis 3.15. When we see the progression, how God is revealing who this coming one will be. Finally, I want you to see in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12. Turn there with me. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12, 13, and 16. Put a finger there. Put a finger there in 2 Samuel chapter 12. And then keep turning till you find Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11. Put a finger there. So 2 Samuel chapter 7 and Isaiah chapter 11. 7-11, that should be easy to remember. Connection. You could think Slurpee. Second <laughs> Samuel 7 and Isaiah chapter 11. So in Second Samuel 7, I want us to look at verses 12, 13, and 16. Okay, this is the Lord speaking to David. It says, when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, so after you're dead, I will set up your seed. That's a key word. That's you know, we want to pay attention to that word. Your seed after you, who will come from your body. I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, verse 16. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. So this is God promising King David that there will always be someone on his, in his family on the throne of Israel. Now, turn to Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. This is several hundred years after the passage we just read. It says here, there shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse. Jesse is David's father. A rod from the stem of Jesse and a branch shall grow out of his roots. Branch is a messianic term, speaking of the branch of David. This prophecy that this one who will come from Jesse, who will come from David, is in the middle of a hyper uh, a prophetic section of Isaiah. So why don't you just turn back a couple pages to Isaiah chapter 7. Or, yeah, Isaiah chapter 7. Verse 14. This is the same section. Okay, when Isaiah wrote this, there wasn't chapters and verses. This is the exact same section, same context. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. Same section. Turn to chapter 9, 
verses 6 and 7. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward even forever. By the way, how is that going to happen? How is that possible? David's been dead hundreds of years by now. How is this possible? The end of verse 7. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. God is the one who's going to make it happen. So I want you to see here, the Bible is not ambiguous, it's not vague, it's very clear that this coming one that we have seen all the way from Genesis chapter 3 is connected to certain people. He has to be, whoever the coming one is at this point, he has to be connected to all these people we have just looked at and we have just mentioned. He's got to be a human being, he can't be an angel. This coming one's not going to be an angel. The one who conquers Satan is not going to be an angel. He is a man. He is a Semite. He's of Middle Eastern descent. He's from the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So he's a Jew, but he's not just a Jew in general. He's going to be a Jew from the tribe of Judah. Everybody will know he is from the tribe of Judah, and he will be of the house of David. Everybody will know it. But that's not all the Bible says and the expectation of this coming one. Uh, Now I want to look at the place of his birth. So the Bible not only predicts who Jesus, the coming one, is related to, he also predicts where he will be born. Look at um, Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Hosea, Joel, Amos, what's that other one in there? Obadiah, Jonah, Micah. Minor prophet, minor prophet. He's he's not a minor, little prophet, it's just he wrote a short book. So uh, Micah chapter 5, verse 2. says here, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, so it's of the tribe of Judah, we've already seen that connection, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, who's going... whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. So here, the name of the town where the coming one will be born is given. It's going to be in Bethlehem in the tribal area of Judah. He's the coming one. He's going to be the ruler of Israel, and he is divine. It says, whose going forth are from old, from everlasting. That's only, you can only speak of that about divinity. So we not only know the people of this coming one's birth. We also know the place of his birth, and we also know the nature of his birth. Now, we have already looked at this verse. You can turn back there if you want to, but Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. I've already read it. It says, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, 
the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. So a virgin will conceive. Do you remember what it said in Genesis 3.15? Talked about the seed of the woman, not a man. Here we see a connection. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. This will be a miraculous conception. It's the work of God. God has to be the one to do this because uh, virgins do not conceive. Secondly, this conception will be a sign. Do you see that? The Lord himself will give you a sign. Now, what do we know about signs? Well, signs are supernatural things, right? They're, they're, I mean, it's a sign. We even talk about it. Well, that's a sign, you know. Even unbelievers talk about it. I received a sign, you know, something happened. They weren't in a car wreck or they weren't struck by lightning, but it struck real close or something. It was a sign from God. It's usually a supernatural event that cannot be explained in any other way. But a sign is also a pointer. In other words, it's pointing to something else. So think about it. The fact that a virgin conceives is not the point. That is not the focus. What's the focus going to be? Unto us a child is given. Unto us a son is born. That is the focus. The focus is going to be on the coming one. And his entrance into the earth is going to be totally unique. Nothing like that has ever happened before and nothing like that has ever happened since. And so we see the miraculous nature of his birth. And so when we consider these prophecies about the people, place, and the birth of the coming one, of the Messiah, we are faced with the fact that these prophecies are detailed. That means God didn't just say in general vague terms, this is going to happen. He said exactly what will happen. And that means their fulfillment must match the details. So let's look at the evidence to see about these fulfillments. Let's look at the evidence. Did it happen the way God said it would happen? Did it actually happen the way that God said it would happen? So, again, the people of his birth. There's two passages in our New Testament that deal specifically with the people of the birth of the coming one. Matthew chapter 1, why don't we just turn there to that one. Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 16 And then Luke chapter 3, verses 23 through 38. You can read that one later. But Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 16. And I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I do want to point some things out to you. This is the genealogy of Jesus Christ. This is talking about his ancestors who came before him. Look at verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ the son of who? David. Then what does it say? The son of Abraham. Now look where at verse 2, first name, Abraham. Then who did he begot? Then who did he have? 
Isaac. Then look at the next name. Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Judah. Go all the way down to verse 6. And Jesse begot David the king. Hmm, matches the Old Testament exactly. If we would look at the Luke passage, we would also see that it includes in that account Shem, Noah, all the way back to Adam. And so we see our New Testament tells us Jesus is the one who's connected to all the people we just looked at who are connected to the birth of the coming one. So, so the genealogical record is evidence that Jesus is the coming one. He is the one that God has sent to earth. Now, is this a coincidence? Is it a fluke? Can someone else make this same claim? Well, if we're honest, we have to say possibly. Possibly. There's lots of people who would have been related uh, to David even at the time of Jesus' birth. So there would be people who could make this claim. But again, this isn't the only information that the Bible gives us about Jesus as the coming one. How about his place of birth? Where was Jesus born? Bethlehem. Turn over to chapter 2 in the book of Matthew. Book of Matthew, chapter 2. Verse 1 and verse 5. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men came from the east to Jerusalem. Verse 5. So they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea. So Herod was asking, where's the Messiah going to be born? In Bethlehem of Judea. For thus it is written by the prophet. In other words, this is what God said would happen. Verse 6. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are not the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. It's a quote from the Old Testament. Bethlehem is the place where God said the coming one will be born. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. He matches the people, he matches the place. Well, what about the nature of the birth of Jesus? The nature of the birth of Jesus. He's, he was conceived of the Holy Spirit and born of a virgin. Go back to Matthew chapter 1, verses 20 through 25. We see a similar account in Luke chapter 1, verses 30 through 35, but we'll, we'll stay here in Matthew. Matthew chapter 1, verse 20. And so this is, begins talking about Joseph. It says, but while he, Joseph, thought about these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. So the Lord Jesus was conceived of the Holy Spirit. 
Verse 21, and she will bring forth a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from his sins. So all this was done. Get this, all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. This happened right in line with how God said it would happen. Verse 24, then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son. And he called his name Jesus. Conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of a virgin. These are two independent accounts. We looked at one, Matthew 1, Luke 1 is another independent account, which confirmed that Jesus is the one of whom the Old Testament prophecies were talking. It might be possible that someone else could claim to have the same genealogy as Jesus. It might be possible that someone could claim that they were born in the same place as Jesus. But it is impossible for someone to claim they were born in the same manner by the same nature as Jesus, an impossibility. God predicted the impossible, and then he accomplished it. And so while it's good and right for us to celebrate the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, the Savior of the world, the manner and nature of his birth is a sign, a sign that is pointing us not to that event, but to the person who was born, to who he is and what he will do. It was that sign that is the final point in a long list of evidence that screams to us, Jesus is who God said he is. This sign is saying not only was Jesus the coming one who's been predicted by almost all the Old Testament, it also says uh, that this Jesus is going to do and be everything that the Old Testament says he will be and says he will do. And what does the Old Testament say Jesus, who Jesus is and what he will do? He is the Messiah of Israel. He's the son of God. He's the savior of the world. And it tells us what Jesus will do. When he comes, he's going to restore the kingdom of Israel and he's going to rule over it. It tells us when he came, he will offer his life as a sacrifice for sin. And he will rise from the dead on the third day to signify the new life that's available through him. Why would we accept these things? Why would we accept them as true? Do any of us fully understand these things? How they could be? I don't think so. But our belief, our faith, our trusting is not blind faith. It's faith 
that is based on the fact that everything God said would happen did happen exactly like he said. And so what is faith? Paul gives us a description of faith. In speaking about Abraham, he wrote, And being fully convinced that what he had promised, that what God had promised, he was also able to perform. Abraham's faith, this is Abraham's faith being described, fully convinced that God can do what he said he would do. Not just can do, but he will do what he said he will do. So why do we find it so hard to believe? Why do so many people find it impossible to believe that Jesus is who the Bible says he is? I think there's a couple reasons. Actually, I wrote down four. Number one, they don't want to be accountable to God. If they believe the Bible, if they believe that the Bible says Jesus is the Savior, and they believe that, then that means they are accountable to God. They're not their own boss. They don't have the final decision. It also means they are culpable. They are culpable. They are responsible for their sin. Who wants to be responsible for their sin? Nobody. Even from the beginning, mankind's pattern is, when confronted with their sin, is to explain it away, blame somebody else. Nobody wants to be culpable, accountable for their sin. If the Bible is true, and if what it says about Jesus is true, then we are responsible for our sins, and we have to pay the price, the penalty, for our sins. People don't want to be faced with that. Even though the message of the gospel is good news that Christ has done that for us, people don't like being said uh, being told that they are responsible for their sins. Then there's the issue of eternality. Eternality. There's more to life than just the here and now. There's more to life than the physical world right now. When we die physically, there is something beyond that. There is an eternal something. And our, the, con the things we do now have consequences in the future. You can make a decision now that determines whether you spend eternity in the lake of fire or you spend eternity and enjoy We make that decision now. Once we die, it's too late. People don't want to be faced with that. They want to live for now. And so they just ignore that. The Bible can't be true. And then there's people who get hung up on the fact that nothing is free. Nothing is free. They can't believe that the Bible says salvation is a free gift from God through Jesus Christ. Nothing's free. They have to pay for everything. I want you to understand your salvation is not free. It's just free to you. So the question is not, is there a price? The question is, who has paid the price? God says that he paid the price through the death of his only begotten son who paid the price for the sins of all men so that he can freely offer life and salvation through trusting in Jesus Christ as one's savior. It is the God who is true and faithful, who never lies, 
who always does what he says, who has said, this salvation is for you. Don't be deceived. Don't fall into the deception of the world thinking that the Bible is not true. Read it for yourself. You see the evidence. You see what it says. God is true and will do everything that he said he will do. The past proves it. So the question is, will you trust him today? Will you trust him today? Believer, let me talk to you real quick. A couple things. The truth is on our side. The truth is on our side. No amount of fancy arguments or theories have ever shown that Jesus is anybody other than who the Bible says he is. Do you, you believe that? No amount of arguments, no amount of so-called science has ever proven Jesus to be anyone other than who the Bible says that, that he is. And because of this, we can have confidence of not only knowing that the prophecies about his first coming were fulfilled exactly, but we also know that the prophecies about his second coming will also be fulfilled exactly as they're stated. And so we need to be ready to give people an answer for why we believe what we believe. And when we talk to people about the Lord Jesus Christ and we tell them, this is why I believe Jesus is the Savior of the world, the Son of God, the Messiah of Israel. When we tell them that's why we believe it, looking at the Bible, and they say, I don't believe it, you know what you should ask them? Why do you believe what you believe? Why? What's the basis for your belief? It's not the truth. It's not the truth. It's a theory. It's a lie. So our God is the one true and living God. Not only can he be trusted with your eternal life, he can be trusted with your life today. So let's live our lives in a way that reflect our trust in God, that we are fully convinced, fully convinced that he will do what he says he will do. Why don't you stand with me and we'll close in a word of prayer. Father, we're so thankful for the gift of your word and how you have not left us without a testimony or without a witness but you have left us with many, many pages of evidence as to what you said and how it was fulfilled. We're so thankful that your son, Jesus Christ, came being born of Mary, a virgin, into the promised land in the first century into a place where the Jews were oppressed by the Romans. He was born into that setting, not a setting of privilege, but a setting even of poverty in a certain uh, sense. So we give you thanks for that plan that you made, and we thank our Lord Jesus Christ for his obedience to that plan. And we give you thanks for your word that we see laid all this out hundreds and even thousands of years before it happened. We know that you are true and faithful. 
You were true and faithful to your word to send Jesus, and you will be true and faithful to your word to send him back again. And you will be true and faithful to us to do for us those things that you have promised to us, your church. And so we praise you and thank you for that. Help us, help us to live lives that reflect not only our trust in you, but your trustworthiness. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.